as part of what has been our, to date, this thing that we're doing called the Year of Biblical Literacy, we've spent our first few weeks as a new church in this uh, specific kind of sub-series that we've called the Story of Israel. And the whole point of the Story of Israel as a series has basically been to ask this question, when I work through the pages of the Old Testament, how do I read Israel's history books in particular? How do these accounts have anything to say to modern followers of Jesus? If they do have anything to say to modern followers of Jesus, what is it? And in what way is an ancient history book authoritative? Since that's the type of word we use to describe the Bible. If this is your first time here, don't worry, go back and listen to the podcast uh, to catch up if you'd like. But for our purposes this evening, let me kind of oversimplify what we've been up to and say that the Old Testament, like the whole of this library of writings that we call the Bible, has been held for thousands of years by followers of Jesus to be something that's breathed out by God through human communicators, but breathed out by God, and thus it has authority. So when we read Israel's history, the idea isn't to look for little moral anecdotes, you know, like, oh, this character was brave, so that means I'm supposed to be brave. Um, the idea isn't to somehow shoehorn uh, a ridiculous metaphor into the story, you know, like, oh, David killed Goliath, um, therefore the message of this story is, what are the giants in your life? You can defeat those giants by the power of God. Um, no, what we're doing is reading is essentially an ancient chronology, and if we, you know, keep this in mind, it's written to and by someone other than us. Um, it was drafted in a time and a culture completely unlike ours in almost every single way. It takes work to even understand the text by steeping ourselves in the world of the author, never forcing our own modern paradigm on an ancient book. It wasn't written to us, frankly. It was written in another way for us, but it wasn't written to us. So consequently, the authority of the Old Testament is a complicated thing. It's drawn from stories, primarily. Most of the Old Testament is narrative. Um, and the stories talk about what God is like. And we submit to the authority of the text when we engage in the difficult task of understanding the text in the first place, which is somewhat complicated. And then after we've done that hard work, the idea is that we embrace its portrait of God. In the Old Testament, more often than not, God's character is presented as basically and simplistically covenant faithfulness or marriage faithfulness. And it's presented as a contrast to the failures of humanity, and in particular, the failures of this people group God has chosen called Israel. And we're seeing how people are attempting to follow God and how they do it wrestling through the messiness of life. So we're reading these stories and this overwhelming theme continues to surface. Israel fails and God is faithful. In fact, a few weeks ago, we spent an entire evening talking about the failure of one guy called Saul, who was Israel's first king. And we talked about in what way is his story like so many of our stories. Um, but to end our sweep through some of the major themes and ideas connected to Israel's history and to reading it well, I want to spend one last night in the story of Israel drawing particular focus on an, another well-known story of failure. In many ways, it's quite like Saul's, but with some significant contrasts. So... If you remember a few weeks back, Israel, as the, you know, the group of folks that God has selected to begin his project of repairing a broken world, Israel reaches a point in their relatively new history as a, a nation in which they look around at all the neighboring nations and they notice that unlike Israel, all these other guys have kings. So Israel asks God for a king, specifically a human king. Until now, God himself has acted as Israel's king, and thus God is understandably unenthused by Israel's request for a human king instead. In fact, he kind of warns them strongly that this whole human king thing is a really bad idea. Um, but we know from this story that God is responsive. He's collaborative with people. He actually grants requests, often grants requests in face of what he has said to be the best thing or what he's going to do. Um, and he works collaborative, collaboratively with Israel, and he grants them their request for a human king. So Israel gets Saul, someone who at the outset of the story is described as descending from a man of standing. He, the text makes a point to say that he's taller than everybody else, and he's the most handsome guy anyone can find in all of Israel, 
which is funny. How, how is that quantifiable? Someone actually went out and did the hard work and like, nope, better than this guy, better than this guy. You're way uglier than he is, you know, or whatever. But somehow that, that's important to include. He gets anointed by God to be the king of Israel, Israel's first king. Um, he gets God's spirit on him powerfully so. He starts prophesying and you're thinking, oh, wow, this isn't so bad. It's actually turning out pretty good. But then things take a turn as they often do. In one particular story, Saul is given this very specific instruction via God's prophet, uh, Samuel. And Saul, in a nutshell, he violates the instructions of the prophet, and that means that he violates the instruction of God himself. But what's more significant is the way that Saul handles his failure. He refuses to take responsibility. He does this whole like, I did do what you asked. Maybe I didn't do every little single thing that you asked, but basically I did the gist of what you asked me to do. And then when that doesn't work, he starts to shift the blame. He's like, okay, well, yeah, I did screw up, but it wasn't my fault. It was these guys around me and they made me nervous or whatever it might be. And finally, when there's nowhere left to hide and no more excuses to make, Saul uh, is left to confess his sin, but he does so promising to make restitution by paying religious lip service to God. So he's like, okay, you're right. I blew it. It was me, but I'll make ritual sacrifices that will blow your mind. They will be so fantastic, it will smooth this whole thing over. And in that moment, Samuel, whose prophet speaks on behalf of God, he announces that because of this failure and because of the way that Saul's handled the failure, Saul's time as king will eventually come to an end in the not-so-distant future. And not only that, uh, a man who is after God's own heart, the text says, will be appointed by God to become the ruler of Israel in place of Saul. And the story eventually introduces the reader um, to this character called uh, David in the form of a, a small shepherd boy. And while Saul's life continues to sort of spiral downward into madness, into actual madness, uh, eventually concluding with his suicide, David's life is on a, a parallel trajectory but running up while, David, or while Saul's runs downward. And it's kind of this exciting rise to power, this little shepherd boy um, who's, who doesn't seem to be qualified to be a king in any traditional sense, but he gets chosen based on his, uh, his radical humility and on his unwavering tr trust in Yahweh, something God sees by looking beyond the external and toward the internal. And God notes that Israel needs a humble king. So now, the shepherd boy is presented in the narrative as an apt contrast to what has become this terrified, insecure, and jealous character, Saul. And just as Samuel the prophet had uh, promised, uh, David becomes king over Israel. And what's interesting is that in the story, the dawn of David's reign is marked by triumph. It's kind of like Saul's, but even more so. Saul on steroids. Everything's going great. David unites the split kingdom of Israel. He, he returns them to Jerusalem. He makes that kind of the center or the hub of Israel. The ark of God's presence goes into Jerusalem with them, and David reigns happily there. Everything is on the up and up. Everything's coming up Millhouse. This is Simpsons reference. You like that, Cam? If I do a Simpsons reference at any time, I can count on one set of chuckles over there. From Mike's just embarrassed. Why is that bad? That's a great reference. Everything's coming up roses or whatever you want to say. So, with all that in mind, uh, as the context for the story, uh, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to sort of read through the text and then work through it line by line. So stay with me. You guys there? Yeah. Feeling all right? Mike's there. How long have you been there? Ever since I said it the first time? Wow, man. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Second Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So military campaigns, uh, they weren't typically preceded by a formal declaration, but they came quite predictably in the ancient Near East following the winter rain, or so I read. For several months, uh, the, uh, the thing happened where every able-bodied man needed to work the fields uh, for the harvest, season, and they le the, the harvest season, and they left the kingdoms vulnerable to military attack. You'd think they would catch on to this eventually, but apparently it was a recurring motif. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, hold on. Uh, 
Because of state duties or, uh, you know, kings didn't always have to accompany military campaigns. Often I've heard people critique David for the fact that he was home at all, but it seems like David's decision to hang back could have been some kind of diplomatic concern or it could have just been a note of confidence in uh, Joab, the guy he had chosen to lead his army. He might have just been saying, hey, you'll do a great job. It's fine. It's not really a huge deal that he was at home. Um, and because of this cool breeze that refreshes Jerusalem in the evening time, it's also not unusual that folks would kind of wander out onto the rooftops and socialize or relax. And David's uh, roof was most likely constructed with kind of a, an additional living room area or maybe even a bedroom on the top that he could come out to. Now, tangent, stay with me for a second. I'm excited about this one, Mike. Um, a month or two ago, I visited Israel myself. You know, I saw uh, with my own eyes, guys, I saw with my own eyes the ruins of David's palace. A bunch of it's still there. It's bizarre. How old, is, how old is this? You know, we don't have, we, stuff we have is like 50 years old. This is 2000, whatever. So you're looking down at all these ruins and everything, and you're like, man, this is insane. Um, and my wife told me that to be an authentic pastor, one must have occasion to mention Israel with some personal, albeit unnecessary, um, you know, uh, story of having been there myself. Uh, she also said that it helps to have a, like a slide of a photo taken on my voyage, you know, and say like, oh, I've been there, I've seen this. And the funny thing is that, you know, it acts as some sort of loose proof that I've been there myself. But really, we could find a better picture by Googling it. Probably the first or second result would be better than any photo that I'm going to take on my phone. So without fo further ado, here's my photo from Israel. There it is. <laughs> I thought this scene was so hilarious. What the heck is going on? I, walk, I was walking around the Jerusalem market, you know, and I went with all these like millennial Instagrammers. It was like a, you know, a trip where they brought along people to learn about Israel and they're all over there posing it with each other like, oh, you got me? Now it's your turn. Get me. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to hashtag it like this and I'm going to tell the world how I'm changing the world for Jesus. It was a bunch of malarkey. But me, I was over there and I saw this display with... Why Jerusalem minions? What that is? It's just like, this is where you're at, and here's a popular franchise. We'll put those two things together. And this cat was just chilling. I liked it. I thought, this is the thing I need to take a photo of. That doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Now, <laughs> I bring this up to mention, really, that uh, I've been to Israel, and what amounts to the winter, uh, it was still warm, and I did experience the cool breeze for myself that's being discussed here. You know, I was, I was delighted to discover that even though it was uh, winter and it was still mostly kind of hot outside, I could keep the same outfit that I wear every day on throughout the duration of my trip, jacket and all. Uh, I was strongly encouraged on the last day, we took a, a Segway tour of Tel Aviv, and they said, maybe you want to leave the jacket at home on this one, and I said, no! But um, it did get hot. I regretted it very much. I didn't regret the Segway tour. In fact, I feel no shame whatsoever about riding that Segway around Tel Aviv. In fact, had I a Segway right now, I would happily ride it around the streets of downtown Vancouver. I would feel no shame whatsoever. This is my subtle way of asking to borrow one if anyone <laughs> has any access to any Segways whatsoever. Anyway, let's get back to the text. Um, now, so David's out there on his rooftop. It's a nice evening. It seems like up until this point, there's no ulterior motives other than, hey, it feels nice outside. Things are going well. And he sees a woman bathing that the text says is very beautiful. We kind of suspect that based on something that shows up later in verse 4, Bathsheba might have been performing an act of uh, ritual purification following her monthly cycle as per the law set forth in Leviticus, which is a weird thing, whole other teaching. We already did it, actually. Go back, listen to the podcast. Um, something the text mentions specifically in verse 4. And I don't know how many biology buffs there are here in the house uh, tonight, but this is what folks in the know call prime time for conceiving babies. She may have uh, been, <laughs> she may have been bathing in front of her house, uh, I don't know, or, or we don't know. The, she may have even been bathing with clothes on. That's not an unusual thing to do. The point is, whatever's going on, he just sees this thing that was probably quite ordinary, and he thinks, uh, wow, she's very beautiful. So let's get back to it. Verse 3. David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, say, David saying, I'm pregnant. Um, interestingly, uh, if you do a detailed reading of 2 Samuel, it reveals that David's 
extended connection to Bathsheba's family is, is uh, quite palpable. Her father, Bathsheba's father, Eliam, was a member of this elite cadre of folks that the text calls David's mighty men, which is, I wonder if they called each other that. Um, so he was connected to David directly. Eliam's father, or Bathsheba's grandfather, was one of David's most trusted advisors. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, is also one of David's mighty men, who he's in uh, communication with, it seems, somewhat regularly. And the point is that there's reason enough to suspect that David knew exactly whose house he was looking toward when he, you know, oogled Bathsheba. This is a very deliberate thing that he's up to. So now in the story, David hatches this scuzzball scheme to bring Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, back from battle. He's off fighting wars on David's behalf. He brings Uriah back from battle and then tries to get him to go home, presumably, you know, to do what married folks do, uh, often immediately when they haven't seen each other in a while. And the thinking is that this would give Uriah no reason to question his wife's new pregnancy. Oh, you're pregnant. That makes sense. That was right when I was home and everything would be smooth over. So David's attempting to cover his tracks. Twice, David goes about this plan. He's all nonchalant. Hey, I sent a present to your house. This is a real, a real way he goes about it. I sent a present to your house. Go, go check it out. And while you're there, you know, but that doesn't work. And David then come, gets Uriah, Uriah to come back over. He gets him drunk. He tells him to go home specifically and Uriah won't return to his wife and just enjoy time off or more. The, the story is telling us that Uriah drunk is more obedient than David sober. And the reason is that, uh, the reason that Uriah won't just go home and hang out and enjoy his wife's company or make love or any of those things is that uh, verse 11 uh, mentions that the Ark of the Covenant is with the army. And that means that there's some kind of special thing that the army is up to that demands unique instruction on God's behalf, sometimes with specific restrictions on the soldiers. One battle narrative in Deuteronomy 23 describes uh, this special purity bathing that happens that has to happen amongst the soldiers while they're encamped against their enemies. Um, Joshua depicts the story where uh, the soldiers are instructed to walk in a circle around a military outpost playing trumpets. Uh, uh, and another story that uh, describes a mass circumcision that happens on grown men prior to some conquest that they have to go do as if, you know, the situation wasn't stressful enough. And at any rate, the presence of the ark indicates that there's some level of unique holiness regulations that are going on with the army, which would explain why Uriah insists on maintaining his ritual purity rather than going home and sleeping with his wife. And Uriah himself says that he refuses to enjoy the pleasures of home when it's something that his men can't do. Um, he finds the idea of something of an injustice. So let's skip down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah on the, in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out, and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So David exploits Uriah's trustworthiness, which seems especially seedy. He sends instruction to have Uriah killed by way of Uriah, knowing that Uriah is trustworthy and he won't read the letter himself. Now, as one of uh, David's mighty men, <laughs> it's, it's like a band that they're in, um, as one of the mighty men, it's not unusual that Uriah would be expected to uphold some kind of strategic position in battle. In this particular case, he's placed opposite an elite force and he's boldly outmatched. So I imagine that the, the plan might have been par for the course, but the setup itself must have been kind of strange. Uriah, once he's on the front line seeing what he's up against, might have been like, huh, yeah, this is an interesting decision. And uh, predictably, Uriah is killed in battle. David's general, Joab, sends word back to David via a messenger. Mission accomplished. Everything went the way that you wanted to. So skip down to verse 25. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city. Destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. 
So notice there's a really interesting contrast here. In verse 25, we read David saying, say this to encourage Joab. And then in verse 27, we read that what David had done displeased the Lord. The author is deliberately showing us that David is concerned for Joab's disposition, but not God's. It's starting to sound a lot like Saul. So with David's awful scheme accomplished, as it were, in full, one imagines David might have felt as though everything had been wrapped up with a nice, neat little bow, and that's when God's prophet Nathan shows up uh, really uh, suddenly. So let's keep reading 2 Samuel chapter 12, the next chapter over, beginning with the first verse. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain day, he just launches into a story as soon as he sees David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought, uh, bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, this lamb. Now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one, uh, for the one who had come to him. David, after hearing the story, burned with anger against that man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So David, as king, was sort of the chief advocate for the rights of his people. He was expected to demonstrate wisdom in a juridical conflict. So by employing this secretly uh, analogous story of the lamb, a very thinly veiled metaphor, I think, Nathan sets David up to pass judgment, and David indeed judges, he's, he's quite ticked off, and he condemns the rich man of the story, unaware that he's judging and condemning himself. And I'm sure many of us can kind of relate to this idea of toting about an anger that's very easily roused when we ourselves have been dra dragging some measure of personal guilt with us as well. And notice within the context of this sneaky metaphor that Nathan employs, the circumstances of the rich man character, the crime that he's committed, they deal with neither adultery nor murder. In this case, adultery and murder are actually products of a deeper, more serious crime, which is the abuse of power. What happens is no less than David's indictment, indictment at the hands of a, of a divine tribunal. As Nathan is the prophet, he speaks on behalf of God himself. And David is indicted not only for manipulating a woman, which is evil. It's another man's wife, which is evil. And he has her husband killed, which is evil. He's indicted for believing that he could take whatever he wanted. The idea is that even horrifically egregious sin is often symptomatic of something deeper and broader and sometimes even more nefarious. And in the story, even the king is held accountable to God. He's unable to avoid God's eye and God's concern for what he's done. David may have, I, I don't know, maybe he could have easily escaped the notice of the civil authorities. Maybe they wouldn't have done anything at all since David's the king, but he hasn't escaped God's notice. And as a result of David's evil, his wives are going to be taken from him. And not only that, David's sin, if you go on to read the rest of 2 Samuel, it 
it echoes throughout his household the rest of his life. His, his violence and his sexual misconduct becomes this recurring motif um, that, uh, that echoes out amongst his entire family, his sons in particular. And that's often the way that, that sin works. And there, in that moment, with immediacy, David confesses that he's blown it, that he's blown it big time. And if you read on in the story, David even goes about life after that. After he's confessed and he repents, as we'll see in the story, he then sort of goes back to what he was doing, the good stuff, not the bad stuff, in the hope that God might, as he often does, reverse this thing, this decree that he said over David. In fact, um, David says, quote, who knows, Yahweh may be gracious. So David begs God's forgiveness, and God does indeed forgive David. In fact, it says that he takes his sin away, but the consequences of David's sin carry on tragically throughout the rest of his life and throughout his entire household. So Bible scholars are arguing that both Saul and David are portrayed with realistic detail in the text because the author intends to set them up before us, the readers, um, as character studies. The reader then is meant to find his or herself in these characters and relate to them in some way, for better or for worse. Now, we've seen both characters fail, Saul and David. In fact, both characters experience a, a certain measure of ruin as a result of their respective failures, but they differ in how they experience and address their own failure. For Saul, inability to deal with sin before God or missing the mark, or messing up, however you want to put it, inability to deal with that before God so clouded his experience of failure that initially he seems incapable of admitting any responsibility for his own mistakes whatsoever. And when he finally acknowledges that he's blown it, he makes excuses or he shifts the blame or he promises religious duty as a, as a way of clearing up what's gone wrong. Saul is unwilling to simply acknowledge the reality of sin and bring it, uh, bring it before God, as it were. He's desperate to shroud it with something, whether it's excuses or penance or, or whatever it might be. It's, it's failure in hiding. And in the story, Saul's pride and his reticence to turn around and go the other way, to repent, they act as an anchor on his back, driving him deeper and deeper into tragic decline. Saul ends up bat crap crazy. Uh, if, you, if you go on and read the story. He's plagued by evil spirits. He's paranoid. And one scene later in his life um, that always stands out to me, David is playing some music for Saul. Read the story. They, be, they become kind of friends, but not really. It's a weird thing. Um, and David's playing some music for him to soothe his soul because he's plagued by evil spirits. And Saul stands up and starts trying to throw a spear at him, saying that he's going to impale him against a wall. And David just runs out, <laughs> you know. Um, I don't know if he screamed like that. But that's the way I imagine it when I read him. He becomes like so consumed with jealousy and with paranoia that by the time the story finally concludes, Saul commits suicide in the midst of a failed military campaign. Now the point is not that if you're prideful, you'll go nuts or, you know, or you'll throw spears at your friend. And I hope, I don't know what your personal bent is. Um, or that you'll kill yourself or any of these things, I hope. The point is that the way that we address moments in our life when we've blown it, in God's presence or else hiding from him, those moments shape us over time. They, they form us for better or for worse. David handles his own failure quite differently. He's wrecked by it. He's, he's aware of the weight of these mistakes and they grieve him deeply. Far from shoveling his mistakes into the, the closet of secrecy, David realized that hiding from God is an impossibility. That's not going to work. And he cries out to God in broken repentance. And we know this because David documents it quite well. So turn in to the right in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Sometime after his, uh, his painful conversation with Nathan, God's prophet, David decides to write a song about it, you know. Uh, you'd think that the guy would be busy enough, but like a good artist, he's in pain, so he makes something. So imagine David, he's facing the reality of his own sin, with, specifically with Bathsheba and with Uriah, and he writes down these words in Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away 
all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In, in the ancient Near East, asking to have one's sin removed or taken away, blotted out, cleansed, is an unusual sort of request. More often, ancient Near Eastern people sought to appease the gods, to kind of calm them down, to satiate their, their whimsical anger. In fact, one only could become aware that the gods were angry at all uh, if he or she experienced some kind of circumstance that might lead them to believe the gods must be angry with me. I got a tummy ache. Gods must be mad. Or I stubbed my toe or whatever. Gods must be mad. So naturally, you've got to find a way to get whatever god happened to be angry appeased. Uh, most, most often by way of a, some kind of cleansing ritual. And even then, the offender's sin or the misconduct, it wasn't something that got removed, you know. It was simply an effort to reinstate favor that one had lost with the gods. Israel's approach to misconduct or to sin was similar in some ways, but altogether different in others. For one, ritual sacrifice in Israel was thought of not as a way to alleviate God's anger um, and, and alleviate the punishment that might come with it. It was to do a cleansing work in light of the knowledge that God's presence had been desecrated in some way. Your connection and intimacy with God had somehow been clouded, and ritual sacrifice was this gesture that would cleanse that lost connection to the Father. The ritual then sort of paved the way for the offender to be forgiven. But this psalm is not talking about that process when he says, cleanse me and blot out my transgressions. Only an unbelievably gracious act on God's part could actually remove any given offense against God from the record book. And the psalmist understands that since he's the one in the wrong, he can only ask for such a thing. He can't boss God around. He can't demand it. He can't even say, I did my sacrifice. Now you did your thing. So David asks for a display of what he believes is God's compassionate mercy, according to your mercy, according to your unfailing love. And he has reason to trust in such a thing because of God's covenant promise to remain faithful to Israel even in the face of her sin. And the imagery here of, uh, of sin being blotted out is the same used for like a parchment scroll that's being scraped clean, all the writing removed, or a clay tablet that gets scrubbed until all the writing is gone. David asked for these things, asks for these things because David knows who God is and he knows what God is like. So when I, when I wrong my wife, for example, I ask her to forgive me and I do so expecting forgiveness. Today, this, this is a funny one, it's from just the last couple of hours. She and I were walking to the grocery store <laughs> before we left to come here and uh, I, this, this is here. This is a shortcoming on my part. You guys can all know about it. If I, ever I'm speaking to someone and they don't hear me and they say, huh, for some reason it just drives me crazy. I don't know why. It's such a petty thing. But uh, especially if they say, huh, while I'm still in the thing that they don't hear, you know? So we're walking along and I was like, I don't know. It probably didn't matter. It was all about something I had seen or, you know, ADD going in six different directions. And uh, I'm like, yeah, and then this happened. She went, huh? Because she couldn't hear me. I was talking at the wall <laughs> um, as we walked. And I went, huh? back in her face because I was, you know, like, oh, that's so frustrating. And she was like, why would you say that to me? I just, I couldn't hear you. It's not anything to be angry with me about. And I knew in that moment, I was like, oh yeah, she's totally right. I was being a total jerk. So I said, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. I shouldn't have spoken to you in that way. And I knew in that moment that she was going to forgive me uh, like that. And she did. She said, it's okay. And then we walked in there and started talking about avocados or whatever. Um, and my, my expectation that Abby will forgive me is based on Abby's character. It's not the same with everyone I know, um, but I know that Abby is inclined to forgive easily. It's one of, her, uh, one of her great qualities. She's not a person that's prone to holding grudges or, the, you know, giving silent treatment or being bitter or any of those things. She actually forgives readily, usually right there in the moment, and then she doesn't care anymore. It's over with. Um, if Abby's character were otherwise, then I wouldn't ask for forgiveness with expectation. I would ask in spite of what I expected to happen. David knows what God is like, and he can ask for such radical cleansing, even in the midst of such disastrous choices. I mean, think about what he's done and who God is, and still he asks like, oh yeah, this thing that I've done, take it away. Make it so like it didn't happen. And he asks that because he knows what God is like. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always in front of me. In other 
ancient Near Eastern texts from around the time of Psalms, individuals typically claimed outright ignorance as to how they could have possibly offended the gods. To begin with, the gods hadn't revealed themselves. We talked about this a bit a few weeks ago. And so first, folks were kind of left in the dark to, to guess at what the gods were even like in the first place. And secondly, it was believed among polytheists or people who held to, you know, belief in multiple gods that what pleased one god will probably offend one of the other gods. And that's just an inevitability. Um, the gods were characterized by arbitrary mood swings. They were totally unpredictable. Um, they were not believed to behave consistently whatsoever, even from a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, and it was entirely possible that one might offend the gods by neglecting to do some kind of ritual that you didn't even know existed in the first place. We have writings that document this. Someone found out after the fact, oh, it's because I didn't do this thing, but I didn't do it because I didn't know it was a thing, and it made the gods mad at me. So as a result, um, in ancient Near Eastern literature, in pagan literature, we find examples of presumed offenders that are, they know the gods are mad at them, so they just list everything that they've done, uh, good or bad, over the last series of days. It's just like keeping a checklist of an itinerary of every single thing that you did, a, a myriad of potential offenses in the hopes that, you know, you're just shooting at something hoping that you'll hit it, that they happen to guess one correctly and the gods won't be mad anymore. So in Israel, think about how different this is. The law was very clear, painfully clear, believe me. And, uh, and it was from a God who had revealed himself and deliberately said, this is my name, this is what I'm like, this is not what I'm like, here's the guidelines for being my people. So offenses could be known. Israel knew when they had violated God's law. God's character, his design, um, his goodness were all known. They were clear. So God's expectations were known. God's character was well known. And Yahweh, unlike the other gods of the ancient Near East, was not arbitrary. He was not capricious. He was not moody. He was steady and unchanging in his character. So the psalmist can know what his offense is with certainty, and he acknowledges that. I know what I've done, and it's always in front of me. I'm haunted by it. Look down at verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, I read this. Maybe you guys are like me. I read this, and I think, surely Bathsheba and Uriah would disagree with this statement. Um, but what we think is happening here is, is David's acknowledgement of who is ultimate judge and authority over him. He's not saying he didn't do anything wrong to people. Um, certainly David's sin has affected many, but David understands that he will face God as the ultimate judge, the ultimate and final judge in the matter. It won't be Uriah or Bathsheba, though he has wronged them as well. Look at verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now listen to me on this one. I realize I'm making you guys go back and forth a bit, but stay with me. Um, what David doing here, he's drawing a contrast between how big and how perfect and holy God is, how altogether different God is, and how inherently weak and flawed and status quo he himself, David, is. So this is, this is remember, this is a hyperbolic bit of poetry. So please listen to me on this. We, we should be really slow to impose some kind of specific theological statement on this particular text about how, you know, zygotes are full of sin or whatever it might be. What we believe David's doing is emphasizing the inclination of all people to sin. Everyone who exists is marked by a compulsion to go their own way from the very beginning of their story. That's what we think the point is. That's the idea. He goes on in verse 6. And yet, even though I was sinful at birth, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. A good indication that this is hyperbolic poetry is that it would seem kind of weird that God would desire faithfulness uh, from a zygote. How exactly is a zygote faithful? Um, David is contrasting his previous acknowledgement that he was quote-unquote sinful at birth by pointing out that just as early in his story, God wanted faithfulness from him. The idea is that though David was inclined to disobey God from the very beginning of his story, God was also supplying him with the means to obey him just as early in the story. He goes on in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Hebrew thinking, uh, the heart was another way of saying the whole person. We kind of use it similarly nowadays as well. David acknowledged his thoroughly sinful disposition. He's, he's completely in the wrong. It's all him. And then he asks God to purify the very core of who he is. Not just this, this part of him that tends to go his own way. He's like, everything about me, make it pure. My actions, my thinking. God is the only power available in the universe to grant such a request, so he asks. And then he goes on in verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And this is huge, you know, to an ancient Hebrew, the removal of God's empowering presence was the ultimate punishment imaginable. And remember, David's the king. The idea of God removing his presence from the king and the kingdom would mean the very end of the covenant itself, the utter ruin of Israel. David knows the story of Saul. I imagine it doesn't say, but I suspect he might be seeing himself in that story right now. And he's asking God for mercy. Don't let that happen to me. Then he finally goes on in, in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So David, interestingly, though he is a, um, an Israelite man, well familiar with the practices, with the customs, with the requirements of the Torah, the law in Israel, he's, he denies the value of an animal sacrifice or ritual sacrifice without some kind of ethical dimension to sustain it. Remember in the story, Saul was like, don't worry, I'll do the sacrifice. He wanted to run to a place of kind of ritual purity. And David's saying, I would go do that if I thought it would do any good, but that's not the point. I've already missed the mark. The sacrifice is just an expression of the truly important component of covenant faithfulness. The misunderstanding, you know, that sacrifice alone equals obedience, or in today's language, that um, Christian duty or Christian faithfulness, or church participation, or whatever it might be, the, uh, a rigorous, regimented time with your Bible, or whatever it might be, that that alone equals obedience is a recurring motif all throughout the story of ancient Israel. For other ancient Near Eastern peoples, the idea is to please the gods with rituals and with a well-ordered civilization. Keep things under control, do the rituals, and you should be okay. But in Israel, on the other hand, the idea is to be God's people, to be in relationship with the creator of the universe and to be like the creator of the universe, which is quite a tall order. And that's, that's not done by way of sacrifice. The way it's done is by holiness or by being different. God is different from everything. You should be different in the same way. You know, for, for more than a month now, I did the math right before I walked up here and the math checked out, trust me. Um, it's not my strong suit, but in this case, I counted to six. For more than a month now, we've been discussing the, the technique and the methodology one employs in, in reading an ancient Near Eastern historical document whose narrative is summarized in the simple statement, Israel fails, God is faithful. And you know, across the span of these last few weeks in particular, we've, we've looked at this portrait from multiple angles. I realize this. And considering this, amidst so much talk of failure and who God is in spite of failure, I asked myself how to best describe God's disposition to us, those of us that have failed, or those of us that are failing right now, or those of us who will fail sometime in the future. And um, to end this sub-series, the story of Israel, and to summarize what God is like. After all, if the whole idea is to embrace the text portrait of God and, and embrace it as authoritative over us, how do we best know what God is like in the midst of failure? And as always, to best know what God is like, we look to Jesus. 
So one more time in your Bibles, last time I promise, turn to the Gospel of Luke all the way in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15. This is one of my favorites amongst Jesus' many parables. Jesus had this knack for parable, parables, you know, short works of analogous fiction used to communicate profound truths about God's kingdom. And in this one in particular, in, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus speaks to many of our deepest hopes and longings and even our fears of what God might be like or might not be like. So let's read beginning in Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, and then he starts to tell a story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, "'How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare?' And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his finger. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. The father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. How to fail well. Pack up your things and go home. Your father will have you in his arms before you can get through your practice confession. In Jesus' parable, it isn't the, the order of words, certainly not any ceremonial gesture of penance that restores the son's relationship to the father. The son, aware of his foolishness, comes home. How to avoid failure altogether. Love, dad, stay home. This week, uh, something occurred to me about Jesus' depiction of God and God's own words to David in the midst of his failure. In 2 Samuel 12, God says to David, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. And in Jesus' story about what God is like, the father who represents the father God says to his son, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. And in both stories, these are things that God the Father is speaking over the disobedient children. This is what we mean when we say, we fail, God is faithful. And this, of course, does not erase the dire consequences of failure. I know many of you probably know that all too well already. Failure does indeed have consequences. We know that often horrific ones. David's evil ripples throughout his household for the rest of his life, but God does not abandon David. He removes David's sin and he holds him guilty no longer. God's 
goodness, his, his readiness to seize us up in his fatherly grip of affection is not in question. In fact, God is reminding wayward children that their every need, what truly matters anyway, is readily available in him, though we forage about hoping to find it in the manure. And there is a way to fail very poorly. And I don't know where all this finds you guys this evening. Everything up to now is a story and everything after now is a story. We've spent so much time talking about failure over the last few weeks um, that, that I suspect that you may have had a moment or two to consider these things already. But we're imploring you to, to join in with us in reading and knowing the scriptures, to reading and knowing the story of Israel, to take what it is that they do have to say and allow these stories to act as an authority over your life, an authority that shapes your worldview, your very portrait and idea of God. And this story is so often about failure when you read through the pages of the Old Testament. And if that's the case, then may we learn to fail well, or to put another way, what to do when we fail and how to avoid failure altogether, maintaining our portrait of God through all of it. May we bravely deny the human tendency to embrace failure as inevitability and then fail poorly on top of that. May we learn to turn around and to trust God's readiness to restore and redeem even with the consequences of failure still on the horizon. The stacking of failure on failure in the secret places of our consciousness, the blame shifting, the ridiculous things that we tell ourselves and others in order to avoid the horrible pain of simply saying, I messed up, this is what I did, and it was wrong. And then to turn around from that thing that it might hurt us and haunt us no longer. And I'm sure many of you guys have known someone or know someone now so compressed by their own stubborn unwillingness to change direction that over time they're, they're solidified in a, in a horrible shape from which they achieve infamy. And those around them start to abandon hope and the decisions they've made and that they make over and over again over time dismantle their lives so thoroughly and deform their personhood so terribly that people start to say things like, that's just the way they are. That's just how that person is. We've gotten used to it, or there's no getting through to them. But when we seize our own horrible failure by their ankles and drag them kicking and shrieking out into the light before God, and when we ourselves draw an extended finger out over these moments of foolishness and admit through our own tears and our own heartache, here it is, this ugly thing that I've done, this ugly thing of my own design, here it is. The light of God is poured out over that hissing failure and it dissolves like a salted slug. Yes, sometimes it hurts very badly. Sometimes there are consequences for failure, even after forgiveness and reconciliation. But how we fail and who we are in front of God the Father and who he is to us, the Father who has us wrapped up an ecstatic reunion before our confession is fully realized. That's what we're learning from these stories.